This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. This week, I wanted to chat with you about buy-sell agreements, the ever-popular, but I think sometimes misunderstood buy-sell agreement. Uh, these are agreements that, if you're familiar with them, are typically thought of as being between two owners or multiple owners of a company, usually a small business. And the idea in the general sense is that when one person dies, the other partners or the other owners can buy that person's interest from that person's family. That's the typical setup. I think that's a helpful setup, although it doesn't really tell the full picture. So I wanted to get into a little bit more of the full picture of buy-sell agreements, how they work, what varieties they come in, uh, and things to think about when you're considering one or when you're evaluating one for that matter. So you have to maybe take two steps back and think about the fact that when you have a small business, things that affect humans can and often will have a major effect on that small business. So typical human things like getting sick or dying or getting divorced or getting into personal financial trouble, etc. All those sorts of normal human experience type things when they happen especially to the owners of a business can cause a lot of stress and sometimes destroy small businesses. And so you have to think about all of those issues when you're thinking through a buy-sell agreement. And one of the first threshold questions you have to ask is who or a collection of who will be the purchasers in the buy-sell agreement. So some event is going to occur. It will trigger the right to purchase the interest in the business from someone else. Who's gonna have that right? Very frequently, uh, when we say buy-sell agreement, really what we mean is what's called a cross-purchase agreement. And in a cross-purchase agreement, it's the owners themselves who buy the interests of the other owners. That's one variation. The second variation is a traditional buy-sell agreement, which in fact is when the company buys the ownership from the owner and redeems them from the ownership. So you basically liquidate their shares and those shares go away. And now the company owns them and cancels them. And then of course you can have a mix and you could even have a buy-sell agreement with a third party who's not an owner of the company. Uh, but you certainly can have a mix, and very frequently there is a formula that is a mix that might give the first right to exercise the buy or the purchase option to, say, the owners among themselves, and the second right to the company or vice versa. And it really comes down to where is the money going to be? How are they going to finance this transaction? Then if you're evaluating these things, you have to really answer a few questions. One is the who, the next is the what, and the final one is the how or when. And 
the who is usually pretty easy when you're thinking about owners in the traditional sense, people who started the business. It gets a little more complicated when you're starting to include in that group things like, or people like employees or other service providers who have been given interests in the company, uh, whether that was done in a, a well-advised way or not, but or it was just promised, uh, and now they have to be made whole by giving them equity after the fact. In all of those instances, each of those people, and if they own their interest through their trusts, for example, through a revocable trust, the trusts themselves need to be parties to the buy-sell agreement. But the buy-sell agreement is going to go beyond that in many cases, and it's going to include people like future ex-spouses, the estate of a deceased person, the creditors of a deceased person potentially, or rather to shield against creditors of a, of a deceased person or a living person. And so it can have a very broad sp uh, scope, and so the agreement really ought to be broad enough, written broadly enough so that you capture all of those people. The, that, the what is a little more nuanced as well, because then you're thinking about, well, what kind of equity are we purchasing? And how much of it do we get to buy? So if some event occurs like incapacity or retirement, does that mean that the company or the other owners get to purchase all of the equity of the incapacitated or retired owner, or do they only get to purchase a portion of the equity? Same thing with a divorce. If someone gets divorced, do you get to buy all of the equity from a, an ex-spouse who now is an owner of the equity, or do you buy a portion of it? Same thing with creditors. If somebody goes through bankruptcy, do you get to buy all the equity or a portion of it? And another, another what is the way that you're going to trigger it. And that can be done usually by giving notice to somebody. And, and oftentimes there's some period of time that is granted to the purchaser to give notice to the other party once one of these events has occurred. And you need to think through, well, how long a period of time should that be? And is that a sufficient period of time for all of the parties to do the things that they need to do to make the purchase happen, including, if it's necessary, value the equity? So if you have too short a time, say it's a 30-day window to purchase, uh, and it's supposed to be purchased for an appraised value, that's a fair market value, 30 days might not be sufficient to get that appraisal done. So you may need to have a period of time that's longer than 30 days uh, where the parties can evaluate whether they're going to move forward with the deal and exercise that option. I see a lot of buy sells that that will have a short window for purchasing the equity. So for for telling the other party that you're going to buy their equity because say somebody died or uh, somebody got divorced, and then it will have a, another period of time in which the closing has to happen on that sale. But again, if that closing period is not sufficiently long to determine the fair market value of the equity. It doesn't really work very well. You're not going to be able to close the deal if you don't even know what the purchase price is, if the purchase price is tied to an appraisal, for example. Okay. The how is an important question, and this is one that um, really can't be overlooked. 
and it has some nuance to it. If this is a purchase from the, the existing owners or from employees to a deceased or divorced or bankrupt uh, or incapacitated or retired uh, owner, then you need to think about the source of the funds. Where is the money going to come from? If it's a small business, it doesn't mean that it's, it has insignificant value. Uh, small can still be quite large. And so to come up with that amount of money might be difficult. You got to think through a few different options. So number one, of course, would just be if it's a cross purchase agreement, the other owners having the money on their own of their own account in their own bank account, and they can just write the check. That's not incredibly common, but I guess it's conceptually possible. The other option is for the owners to purchase life insurance on the other owners or for the company to purchase life insurance on the life of the owners, so-called key man insurance. And in that case, the buy-sell agreement would try to make it clear that the proceeds from the life insurance policy are going to be used to purchase the the interests of the deceased or divorced or bankrupt or incapacitated or retired owner, whatever the trigger event is. And that if there's anything left over that'd be owed to that person, then that amount is going to be paid in some other fashion. There are usually also in a good buy-sell agreements among the parties who are purchasing the life insurance to provide information, to give assurances, uh, to be able to prove that the life insurance policies are being maintained, to be able to step in if the life insurance policy perhaps isn't being maintained. Uh, so there's some there's some protection. And in fact, in some cases, the life insurance policies are not held by any of the parties directly. They're held in a separate entity, a so-called life insurance LLC. And then that entity could be controlled if there isn't enough trust among the parties by a neutral third party who will pay the premiums, who will call for contributions to, to pay premiums, who will track the, the accounts of the LLC to keep everybody honest. If there isn't enough money in the life insurance, or maybe if you're not using life insurance, usually the other option is to have uh, a purchase price that is tied to a promissory note. And the promissory note needs to be on terms that people can afford to pay. So for example, if it's the company in a true buy-sell agreement, and the company is going to be buying the, the equity of an owner who is deceased, if the terms of the note are so aggressive that the company doesn't have the cash flow to cover the payments, then that's probably not going to work very well unless the company can go out and get a loan from a bank, for example, to cover that purchase. So some of those terms as well, you have to think through some practical realities. What what sort of business does the business have or do the other owners have in cash flow off of those businesses or other investments, I suppose, uh, that could support the payments that are being structured in the note. You don't want to just have a general provision about a general note and not think through what that really translates into under various scenarios of valuation. So if it's a note for a million dollars, that could be one thing. If it's a note for $10 million, it could be something completely different. And all the parties really would want to go into that with eyes wide open, knowing that 
if one of these events happens and they either get to or required to purchase the equity of another owner of the company, that there's going to be sufficient liquidity to cover all those payments. There's perhaps one other option for uh, for a buy-sell. It's not exactly a buy-sell in the traditional sense, but there's another option that, that sort of functions like a buy-sell and doesn't really uh, have to do with transactions among the owners or the company. And that is to have in the documents what, what are all often called a tag-along provision or a drag-along provision, and sometimes both, depending on what you're trying to do. So with the tag-along provision, a, say, minority owner of a company can force the majority owners of the company to include the minority in a sale to a third party of the majority interest holders' equity in the company. So if they go out so if somebody owns, say, 60% and they go out and find a buyer for their 60%, the 40% owner can force the 60% owner to take them along to sell 100% of the equity of the company. With a drag-along provision, the reverse is true. It's the majority owners who can cause the minority owners to be part of the sale. So if the, the 60% owners, in my hypothetical, find a good buyer, they can go to that buyer and offer the buyer a 100% stake in the company rather than just a 60% stake in the company, which third party may not want to buy. They might want 100%. They may not want to be partners with the 40% owner at all. And those aren't traditional buy-sell agreements, but in many small businesses, those are very important provisions to have in the documents of the company that function similarly to a buy-sell in that they are trying to solve for the transactions among the owners of the company so that you can't have one owner take an action that could be detrimental to another owner, like selling out your equity to a third party and leaving the 40% owner as a minority owner in a company with a third party that they don't know and they, they may not trust. And so, again, these are human interactions, right? Human issues. People get sick, People die, they get divorced, they have creditor issues, uh, they sell things for money, or they try to maximize profits of their investments, including their interests in companies. Uh, all of these things really ought to be considered in a traditional buy-sell. So when you think of a buy-sell, again, the easy construct is just uh, really what is a cross-purchase agreement between owners of the company with maybe insurance. And that's usually as far as the discussion goes. But it, it goes far beyond that. And you really want to think through in a good buy-sell agreement all of the different ways that the ownership structure could be upset by individual transactions or individual life events among the key owners and even employees who are owners. And then you want to address all of those things and make all of the actual owners of the equity, the parties to the agreement, including trusts, if there are trusts that are the owners of the equity, which for most of my clients, the answer to that is yes, because that's where I'm most comfortable. Um, and so you really, you just want to think through all of those little nuancey issues. If you do that, you're going to catch a lot of, uh, a lot of problems and you're going to be able to solve a lot of problems 
that if they go unaddressed, really can be detrimental to small businesses. And the whole idea is for these small businesses to, to thrive, to preserve the wealth that's being generated, because oftentimes the small business is the generation of wealth within these families or a huge part of it. And we want to preserve that and we want to protect it. And we're trying to preserve it and protect it from these detrimental events so that we have a clear path forward. And so the disruption of those events will not diminish the value of the ownership in these small businesses. So that's the whole name of the game. Just have a clear path to preserve the value and hopefully limit down disputes and things of that nature that can really be detrimental to small businesses, particularly where you have uh, key owners who are who are involved in the day-to-day uh, of the business. You don't want to have any sort of bickering and fights and, and uncertainty in those circumstances. All right, that's it for today. Uh, as usual, thank you so much for listening. Uh, it's, it's humbling that anybody will listen to uh, this podcast. This is, in fact, the 160th episode of the podcast and i'm hoping to get to at least a thousand so we got a long ways to go but we're chipping away and i'm really happy to do it so thank you again for joining me hey listeners thanks again for joining me on the podcast it's fun to do it for you if you're enjoying it please subscribe at apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealth and law i'll see you there